You're listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelzer. John, for those that haven't come across you online, introduce yourself and tell our listeners what we're talking about today. My name is Jonathan Tico. I go by John. I'm an attorney. And in my practice, I represent whistleblowers in what are known as Quitam lawsuits. And for reasons I'm sure we'll get into, a lot of that is related to the healthcare industry, and a lot of it is related to pharmacies and pharmaceuticals. All right. Now, the obvious first question is, what the hell does Quitam mean? Sure. Well, it's a shortened version of a much longer Latin phrase. We like Latin phrases oh, in yeah. the law. But what it means is a lawsuit that is brought by a private citizen, but in the name of and for the benefit of the government. And so the False Claims Act is the statute, the primary statute that we operate under. And that's a law that makes it illegal to commit fraud on the government or on government funded programs. And so as it would relate to your audience, healthcare fraud that that impacts government-funded healthcare programs like Medicare, Medicaid, TRICARE would violate the False Claims Act. And a whistleblower, a private citizen who has information about such a fraud can initiate one of these cases. And if the case is successful, most of the money goes to the government because it's the government's money, but the whistleblower gets a share as the financial reward or incentive for having come forward. You focus on the government side of that. Is there such a thing as a whistleblower that's not involved with government, or is it always a government thing? Well, whistleblower is a much more general term. We use that term in our practice. There's a lot of different types of whistleblowers. There's government whistleblowers. There's other types of corporate whistleblowers. The technical term under the False Claims Act is actually relator. That's the person or company sometimes that brings the lawsuit. But we use the term whistleblower just because people understand what we're talking about when we say that. When I think of whistleblowing, I think of someone does it and now their life is threatened and all the dark corners and the car chases and all this kind of stuff. I'm sure it's exciting, but I don't think it's all of that. Well, I actually count myself very lucky because a lot of lawyers do stuff that honestly is kind of boring, but my practice is actually super fun. I mean, I've never been involved in a high-speed car chase, but, but there is definitely a cloak and dagger aspect to it. We often have clients that are inside of big companies that are speaking out about things that they are very concerned about the ramifications of doing that, about losing their jobs, being blacklisted, and so forth. We have had clients that have been worried for their physical safety. We've had clients that have worn wires that have helped the government run sting operations. So it's never quite as exciting as it is on TV, where they have to take a three-year case and boil it down to one hour. But as a legal practice goes, it's actually a very interesting practice, and it does actually have some of those aspects to it. When somebody whistleblows, is it common that they're staying in the corporation and they're doing this secretly and the government wants them to keep going? Or are there some people that they're looking back at a company that they left because they didn't want to be a part of it? Is it a mixture of all that? Yes, it is a mixture of it. And there's nothing in the statute itself that says that the whistleblower or the relator has to be currently working in the company. Often that is the case, 
but we certainly have clients who have, by the time they reach out to us, they've already left or been fired. Sometimes cases are brought by other people in the industry, just industry experts, competitors, other businesses who see one of their competitors doing something unlawful and use, use this statute to bring it to the government's attention. I mean, the main purpose of the statute from the government's perspective is to create a vehicle for people to come to the government, to the Department of Justice, with information about unlawful conduct. And the Department of Justice doesn't particularly care who it is that's bringing them the information. They just care about whether what they're being told is true and whether there's really something illegal going on. Is it ever a case where the whistleblower maybe has a little bit of blood on their hands, like they were part of it and they're trying to jump the gun and bring it to light before someone else brings it to light sure. and now they're part of the guilty party kind of thing? Well, often the whistleblowers, the best whistleblowers, the people who have the best information about the illegal conduct are people who were at some level involved in the illegal conduct. That is not unusual. And what I would say about that is that what the statute says is that as long as you are not sort of the person who planned and initiated the fraud, you're not the one running it, you still can come forward to the government and claim your reward at the end. If you are somebody who has planned the fraud or run the fraud scheme, and you then turn yourself in and try to claim a financial reward for having done that, the Department of Justice will say no. So there can definitely be gray areas there, but what we find is that the people that are leading and planning the fraud never are never our clients. They're never the ones who turn themselves in because they understand they have liability and there's criminal ramifications for this kind of conduct too. So our clients are more typically lower level folks in the company or people that are in a different function in the company who, who have kind of stumbled on this conduct Sometimes they are folks who have tried to stop the conduct internally. They've gone up the chain. Often it starts with somebody who thinks that the company is just out of compliance and doesn't realize it. And so they go up the chain and say, hey, we're doing this thing. I think it might be unlawful. Maybe we should stop. And then the reaction they get from the company is, oh, no, let's, let's not talk about that. <laughs> and then it becomes a legal problem. But, um, but what I would say is, yeah, don't. the False Claims Act is not a way to both engage in fraud and then make money by turning yourself in. That won't work. So the victim is always the government, or are there times when it's like two companies or something? Well, for it to be a valid case under the False Claims Act, these QUITAM cases, that law is specifically designed to protect the government's money. What about other things we hear about, like whistleblowing? Is it always the government's a victim, or is it, could it be two companies against each other? I guess what I would say is often the conduct that violates the False Claims Act is also illegal for other purposes. So you could imagine that, I'll just throw out a hypothetical, a hospital is overbilling for procedures it's not really conducting. All right, let's just say something simple like that. If it's doing that, there's probably a False Claims Act violation because the hospital is likely getting paid through Medicare and Medicaid. But that same scheme could also be committing fraud on private insurance it could also be committing fraud on their individual patients. Gotcha. Um, it's just that the there has to be a nexus to government money for it to be one of these key TAM cases. But it doesn't mean that the other kinds of conduct aren't bad or that they aren't happening. Now I got to go back to the drawing board. <laughs> <laughs>
But often what we find is that in the healthcare business in particular, if there is sort of a big ongoing fraud scheme, it almost always ends up violating the False Claims Act because it will almost always touch government money at some point. The typical person that comes to you, what is their demeanor? Are they pissed? Are they anxious? Are they withholding? Like they feel a little bit of guilt bringing this up? What is their demeanor usually when they're coming to you? Well, as you might imagine, it's a mix. But what I will say is that my experience representing whistleblowers over the years is that they often exhibit some personality traits that are somewhat unique in the sense that they tend to be people that have a strong sense of right and wrong, a strong sense of justice, often some sense of patriotism because they realize that they're sort of protecting the taxpayer's money and the government's money more broadly. But the other thing that's sort of unique about whistleblowers is that they are often doing something that very much cuts against sort of the normal social grain. All of us will say, oh, sure, if we see something illegal, we would stand up and raise our hand. But in practice, most people don't. I mean, this has actually been studied by psychologists. Most people, if they're in sort of a group setting, like at a company with a bunch of their employees, and they see somebody doing something wrong, the instinct is not to immediately raise their hand and point a finger. The instinct is to try to get along, maintain group cohesion, protect themselves, even people that are perfectly good moral people. And so the whistleblowers, it takes a certain amount of courage. And so I will say when they when they come to us, they're often in a little bit of psychological turmoil at that moment where they're reaching out to a lawyer, which is a big step for most people. And they're trying to kind of figure out what to do in this situation. So they're there's a, there is a sort of a unique psychological kind of situation there. You see it on TV about everybody will be on an elevator facing the back or something when someone yeah, exactly. goes on and then they gradually turn around after about 45 seconds. They first say, look that way. Then they turn a shoulder and you see it with different things. Not this simple, but you know, four people say two plus two is five. And then the last person gets into that kind of thing. Yeah. John, when people... They're seeing something, they've gotten to the point where they want to do something, and they're looking online for an attorney that does whistleblower. Is it that direct of a link to you? Often that is what it is. Yeah. I mean, we sort of put ourselves out there as attorneys that do this. It's a fairly niche practice, really. I mean, there's honestly, there's probably about a few hundred of us across the whole country who really have some expertise in this area. So sometimes the clients just find us online, read something about one of our cases and reach out to us directly. Often what happens is they will go to some other lawyer, like a more generalist employment lawyer or something. And then that lawyer says, well, if, I think you have an issue here, but this is outside my expertise. And then the lawyers kind of know how to find other lawyers who have these different sort of niche practices. And so sometimes it'll come to us that way. So then they come to you. And I imagine then that you guys probably have to hire someone to do some private investigation or something. Right. So a big part of our practice is just kind of doing what we call case vetting. So this is sort of the first process when a potential client reaches out to us. We have to hear their story. What do they say is happening? And then we start to ask all the same questions that the government lawyers are eventually going to ask if they go forward. And a lot of that comes down to what is the evidence? Because the government prosecutors who handle these cases are going to be somewhat skeptical of a case if it's just somebody's story. Here's my story of what happened. 
okay, are there any documents that show that's what happened? No, no, no. Are there any, were there any other witnesses? No, no. See, that's not a good case. And, and we would normally tell somebody like that, well, sorry, but I don't think that's, I think you should not file that case. So a lot of the case vetting is about sort of exactly what you're talking about, looking at the evidence often that the clients themselves have. If they're inside the company, there are, there's usually some document trail, some set of emails or memos or, or in healthcare, just bills and medical charts and thing, things that you have to look at to figure out what's really going on. And then we often have to do some legal research on our end because every specialty within the healthcare business has its own set of rules, its own set of regulations. And so though we do healthcare cases day in and day out, often a client will come to us with some issue that we've never dealt with before. Now we have to go figure out, well, what really are the reimbursement rules for this particular type of care or this particular type of device or drug? And so we have to do some of that. And that's sort of a process. And that off that process sometimes takes a while. And then once we've sort of gathered the information, done our research, then we can go back to the client and say, yes, you have a strong case. Here's Here would be the process if you want to go forward. Or sometimes we tell people, we don't think you have a very strong case. We don't think it's going to be successful. You really shouldn't stick your neck out for this one. And we decide not to take the case. I'm thinking if I worked for a big company and if I was ticked off at them, one of the first things I'm going to do, I mean, if I was unethical, one of the first things I would do is try to be a whistleblower on them. And that'd be the best way I would think to take down a big company if that was my desire. So you probably get some false accusations. Yeah. I mean, you got to remember, most people don't go to work for a company with the goal of taking the company down. But after you're wronged, after you're fired, people don't go in there for that, but they're fired and they don't think they should have been fired. And now they concoct this whistleblower thing. Is there any of that? A kind of a revenge thing with no proof? Those are the cases where we would say, no, we don't want to take that case. I mean, and that's why we go through that vetting process. We would not file a case that was just somebody's concocted story because we know what's going to happen in those cases. Filing a key TAM case as, an, as a pure act of revenge will not work. It won't get you the revenge you want. It's not going to be successful. Because you need so much proof to probably even open the case kind of thing. Well, what you got to remember is you're bringing this case on behalf of the government. It's not your case. It's the government's case, although you have a role in it. Gotcha. So it, the cases are filed in court like a normal lawsuit. They are filed what we call under seal. They are secret filings. The defendant, so let's say you're a pharmacist and you work for Walgreens, and this has happened. Walgreens has gotten a bunch of these, and you think Walgreens is doing something illegal. You file the case against Walgreens in federal court. Walgreens does not know that you have filed the case. It's secret. But you then give that complaint to the US Department of Justice. And you have to do what is called a disclosure statement, where you tell the Department of Justice lawyers, here is all the evidence that I have in support of my case. And then the first thing that the Department of Justice does is they assign a team to your case and they call you in. They call you, the whistleblower, into an interview. Mm. And you have to sit down across the table from the DOJ lawyers and investigators and they grill you. I mean, this is off the record. It's not in court. But still, you're going to get grilled. They're going to ask you hard questions. They are testing you. Sure. Because you are asking the government to open open an investigation. They have limited resources, limited time. They have to decide. They're sort of doing their vetting. Like, are we going to take this case seriously or not? 
And if you're not ready for that, and all you have is a revenge story, but you can't back it up, it's not going to go far. They're just going to shut it down. So like I said, this process of vetting, and then if we decide it's a good case, kind of packaging that case in the right way, so that when the Department of Justice looks at the case, they understand it, they see what the key evidence is. I mean, they're looking for good, strong cases. They're going to go do their own investigation. They never just take our client's word for it, no matter what we do. But but we want to sort of trigger those government investigative resources. And to even do that, the case has to be pretty credible. And when I picture the whistleblower cases, I'm picturing like bringing a company down. But I imagine that you have whistleblowing that the highest it's going to go is maybe stopping one part of the business and maybe a fine or something. It's not always like bringing down the whole company. No. In fact, that is never the goal and because the Department of Justice will not do that. They, as a matter of policy, I mean, except if it's criminal conduct. What we're handling is a civil case that's about money. Sometimes our cases will lead to criminal investigations, but that's up to the government to decide whether they want to take it that way. But if it's just a civil case about money, the Department of Justice, as a matter of policy, will not force a company into bankruptcy. They will always look for a way to settle the case on terms so that the company survives. And the reason they do that is particularly in the healthcare business. I mean, let's say you have a pharmacy and you're the main pharmacy in that town, right? The Department of Justice doesn't want to deprive the town of that medical service. They view their job as kind of recovering whatever kind of money they can, as much as they can without putting the company into bankruptcy and kind of cleaning it up, like getting the company, stopping the illegal conduct, forcing the company to start doing business legally, but keeping the services going. So even in the biggest cases, and some of these cases are billion dollar cases if they're against huge pharmaceutical companies that can absorb a billion dollars like it's nothing, right? But if it's against, I mean, and there are cases that have been brought against smaller pharmacies, small pharmacy chains, and the government's role is not to put them out of business. The government's role is to try to clean up that business, get them playing legally, and then to recover as much money as they can without putting the company out of business. Where does intent fall into this? Shenanigans versus just incompetency kind of thing. Does that play a part on either side of these? I'm talking about the guilty party. Sure. Yeah. So the there there is an intent element to the claim. That's what we would say in the legal term, scienter is the, the fancy word. So what the statute says is that in order for it to be illegal under the False Claims Act, the the making of the false claims or fraudulent conduct has to be knowing. That's the word that the statute uses. And that is a defined term. It's not as simple as you would think. In fact, just last week, the Supreme Court decided one of the biggest False Claims Act cases in the last few years. And the whole case revolved around what does knowing mean in this statute. And it happened to also be a pharmacy case. It's an interesting case involving usual and customary charges in the pharmacy context. But the case revolved around the question of defining that that exact term in the statute. So yet, yes, there is, it's not the same as criminal intent. So you can be liable under the False Claims Act for what's called reckless disregard or deliberate ignorance. In other words, you can't just put your head down and pretend not to know anything about the reimbursement rules if you're asking to be reimbursed. You have to act reasonably to understand what the actual rules are, what the actual facts of your claims are. If you're just submitting claims 
willy nilly without knowing what's behind them, you're you violate the statute. I mean, it's not so it, it, that may not be enough for criminal intent, but it's enough for civil liability for the money. Somebody who's got the wherewithal to know how to bill things and do this and that. Well, naturally, you have to know a rule if you're requesting money from this place. Right. Yeah. That's basically what it comes down to. If you're in the business, you know, you're, you're a business of pharmacy and you, if you're submitting claims to Medicare, you have to know the basic reimbursement rules and you have to know the facts behind your claims. Like if you're claiming that you dispensed a particular drug, you better have actually dispensed it and you better have a record somewhere that you did that. All right, John, let's go down the road of usual and customary. I know that a bigger chain had one that they won a year or so ago. Well, this case that just came out of the Supreme Court, I think, is a really good example of that issue. And it is a complicated issue. So as some of your listeners, or if you're in this business, you probably know that the Medicaid system and Medicare Part D both typically have a requirement that when a pharmacy bills those systems, that they bill the government at what is called usual and customary charges. The purpose of that rule is just to make sure that the government isn't paying more than other customers. So the question is, what does usual and customary mean? In these cases that went up to the Supreme Court, the factual scenario involved sort of these rebate or promotional pricing systems. So one of the cases involved Safeway Pharmaceuticals, and the other one involved a company called SuperValue, which I take it as another big pharmacy chain. And they were both doing similar things. They had these various promotional programs where they kind of had a list price, but then they had discount prices. And it turned out as a factual matter that they were actually charging the discounted prices, at least this is the allegation in these cases, that they were charging the discounted prices more frequently than they were charging the list prices. But when they reported the price to the Medicaid system or to the Medicare Part D providers, they reported the list price, not the discounted price. So the allegation in the case is, no, those were not your usual and customary charges. And in fact, you knew that. I mean, this is the scienter question. Did they know that they were not their usual and customary charges? And those cases became the vehicle for taking this question of, well, what does it mean to know all the way up to the Supreme Court, which the Supreme Court answered in a very broad way. The companies had actually won these cases in the lower courts. They had argued that even though we now know that what we did was illegal, at the time we did it, it wasn't clear that it was illegal. That was their argument. And the argument on the other side, on the government side, was well, maybe it wasn't 100% clear that it was illegal, but you knew internally that you were risking that this was illegal. And there was evidence, at least this is, again, this is the allegations in the case. These cases have not gone to trial, so we don't know what the total outcome is going to be. But the allegation is that these companies actually knew internally that the government would likely not regard their list price as the usual and customary. And yet they went forward, they sort of took the risk and they took the risk and they turned out to be wrong. And then the question is, was that sufficient to kind of satisfy this knowing element under the False Claims Act? And the Supreme Court said, yes, if the facts that are alleged in those cases are actually proven, that yes, that, that would violate the False Claims Act. You can't sort of knowingly take the risk of being wrong. That's kind of, kind of the lesson of that case. But it took those cases have been around for many years, and it took the whole process all the way up through the federal system to the Supreme Court to resolve that. That is now the law of the land. 
a good outcome for the government and a good outcome for like our clients who are who bring those cases. It, it took away a potential defense that the companies were asserting. John, what are some areas that pharmacists might not even know they're doing something wrong? So in the case about the UNC, it's kind of like we didn't know, but we're kind of burying our head. Maybe we think there might be a problem, this or that. What are some areas where maybe a pharmacist just has no clue? I mean, if they would have done their homework with the correct fraud, waste, and abuse stuff, they might. But what's something that they might do that it never crossed their mind that it was the rules? Yeah, well, I would say the anti-kickback statute is sort of in that category. So what the anti-kickback statute says, in essence, is that it's illegal to provide an inducement, I think that's the word the statute uses, in order to obtain a referral for a service that you're ultimately going to bill to a government-funded healthcare program like Medicare or Medicaid. And the government has taken a very hard line on what counts as an inducement. So Walgreens got in trouble a number of years ago because they had this program where they were giving $25 gift cards, a relatively small inducement. They said, just transfer your prescription over to our pharmacy and we'll give you a 25. And their program, their written description of the program even said, but we won't do it if you're a Medicare or Medicaid beneficiary. But in practice, what was happening is the patients were coming in and saying, I want my $25 gift card. And then the pharmacist at the store would say, oh no, you're covered by Medicare. We can't do that. And the patient would go grumble and the pharmacist would go, oh, okay, fine. Here's your $25. And so as a practical matter, they were paying them to everybody and they got in trouble for that. And the and so that's something that I think in any other business, let's say you're selling cars, come on into our dealership and take a test drive and we'll give you a Starbucks gift card. It would not be illegal. Nobody would think it's illegal. It's only illegal in the healthcare context. And the reason for that is, I think, is that this is really intended as a patient protection measure. And it's not really directed at pharmacies so much as it's directed at doctors and hospitals, I think. The idea being that we want medical judgments to be made purely for the benefit of the patient's care and not have those medical judgments sort of infected by these kinds of like back padding things that are normal in other businesses. And so pharma pharmacies can definitely get, get caught up in that. I, I think sometimes it can be very intentional. I mean, there was a big case that settled a few years ago against a company called Patient Care America, where they were doing something a little more nefarious. This was a company that was doing mostly pain creams, and they were compounding these pain creams, and they were sort of basically paying people to go out and find patients for them, and then paying them like a little, if you find us a patient, we'll give you a little bit of money for that. And then they were, they were doing the same thing with doctors who were doing sort of telemedicine would write the prescriptions with very little input from the patients or sometimes no input from the patients. That company got into trouble. They, I think they ended up paying like 20 or $30 million. And so that, that's a more sort of intentional thing. But I think just like even these little small inducements, I think a local pharmacy could get into trouble doing that if they just didn't know that was against the law. They might otherwise think they were doing something totally harmless and helpful for the patients. Failure to collect copays or copay waivers. The government takes the position that's a kickback, that the patient owes that copay. And if you tell the patient, now nah, don't bother, you're essentially giving that money back to the patient and that's actually a kickback. So things that I think sometimes can be done for not particularly nefarious reasons, 
um, can run afoul of the anti-kickback statute. So that's one that I think everybody just needs to be conscious of and kind of and just aware of. There's some things that if you came into a store ownership now, you probably wouldn't do, but there's some things probably that pharmacist Jones did in the 1950s and has always done this and families go on and things just happen, but rules change. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think another area uh, that's been sort of a hot issue recently, and again, that's very pharmacy specific, has to do with quantity and days of supply limits. Mm Mm-hmm. And so there's been a couple of cases, one one that, that my firm handled, a couple of partners at my firm, Renee Brooker, Eva Gunasekera, who are themselves former Department of Justice prosecutors who did this on the government side, they're now in private practice. They had a case involving a company called PillPack, which was an Amazon subsidiary that was, I think, doing mostly online fulfillment. And the issue there had to do with these pens that are used to administer insulin for diabetics. And I and you probably know more about this than I do, but they, I take it that those pens are often sold in like boxes of five pens or something like that. And the pharmacy had this online pharmacy had some system where that was intended to track how many that they had dispensed to the patient, so that they could accurately report the sort of day of supply information, which I take it in, in, for that product needs to periodically be re- reported to the insurance companies or to Medicare. But they had set up their system in a way that they were sort of, I guess, under-reporting the supply and therefore dispensing and billing for more of these than they really should have been. And they ended up settling for about $6 million. And the relators, our clients who were themselves pharmacists working for this company, I think, got over a million dollars in rewards. And Walgreens a few years ago got into trouble again. It was these insulin pens. And it was a similar thing where they had a software program that was supposed to track things but they had sort of set up the program in a way that the sort of store level pharmacies were not able to sort of break up the five pack box. And so they were essentially selling more pens than the customers needed and knowingly do that. And I take it that these pens are, there's a huge number of these that are sold to diabetics. And so if you, a little extra margin on each sale over time, I think Walgreens ended up paying like close to $40 million in that case. And don't get me wrong. There's people out there that know better and they're cheating people. On the other side, it's tough because, again, I'm not making excuses for people that did it, but let's say you had no intention and you're trying to do your best. There's some of those things like, for example, the pen, you got eight different insurances telling you something different. And then the package says, must be sold in a pack of five because the correct government warnings are on the box, not on each pen kind of thing. And there's so many damn rules that I think I'm following all of them, but I can see where somebody may not be just because you're getting it from every different angle. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And this is where this sort of intent element does come in. Not every violation of that rule is going to be viewed by the government as fraud. Uh, It has to be pretty systematic and ongoing and at a company that should know better. I mean, I think that's the theme there. I mean, I think the other area that's similar to this and that that is, I think, a really interesting area because I think think the bigger question here, maybe I'd be interested actually to know what you think about this, is sort of what is the role of the pharmacist in sort of policing prescriptions? 
And this is a huge issue in the opioid litigation that's going on now. Just about a month ago, I think it was in, in April of this year, maybe two months ago now, the Department of Justice intervened in a False Claims Act case against, I think it was Rite Aid, where the allegation was that Rite Aid had violated the False Claims Act by filling prescriptions for opioids when they sort of should have seen red flags that from which they should have determined that these prescriptions were not medically valid, not medically necessary. They, there wasn't any question that the prescriptions were written and presented to the pharmacist, but the government's theory in that case is that Rite Aid had enough information, at least about some of these prescribers and some of these patients, to know that these were not being used for medically necessary purposes. And that was enough to make the claims for under Medicare and Medicaid violations of the False Claims Act. So that case is ongoing. We don't know what the result in that case is going to be, but I think this is sort of similar to the dosage cases in the sense that they both kind of go to this question of, well, what is the role of the pharmacy in sort of making sure that what they are dispensing and billing for is truly medically necessary. And I'd be curious to know what your thought is about those opiate cases because you're probably right on the front lines of that kind of issue all the time. I had Ray Carlson on. He's a pharmacist and an author of a book. It just came out a few months ago, but it's The Opioid Crisis and Where Do Pharmacists Play a Part in It and so on. And he didn't hold anything back saying that that's all squarely on the pharmacist. I wanted to kind of think of excuses and so on. Like, well, the doctor wrote it and all this kind of stuff. He said, look, the pharmacists are getting paid $120,000, $150,000, something like that a year. And they're professionals. And if they're in a situation where they're not able to do their job being the DUR, I forget the law, but it came out the counseling law years ago that pharmacists had to counsel and so on. He said, if they're not doing their job and they're in a place that is not allowing them to do their job, they got to stand up. They got to quit. They got to talk. They got to do something. Burying your head in the sand, being a professional, you owe it to the fellow American citizens to stand up. He puts it solely on them. And I can't disagree with him. I don't know if I'd want to march around with a sign outside and say this, to get tomatoes thrown at me, but I can't say I'd disagree with him. I think there's others to blame too, but pharmacists are not faultless. Absolutely. I mean, the doctors who wrote the prescriptions are primarily to blame. But I think that I think the government's thinking on that case is, well, okay, yes, the doctors wrote the prescriptions, but the pharmacies were making a lot of money off this. And at some point, a big pharmacy like Rite Aid that has access to a lot of data and can really tell, like they actually had flagged some of these doctors as like, there's just no way that this is legit. But it's interesting. That's, I think, just going to be a hot area in this field for a while. We'll see how those cases play out. And it's just an interesting thing to keep an eye on. Are legal wins, financial wins in court from whatever the source, are those tax-free? That's not like an earned income kind of thing. No, they are taxable. So the government gets half of it. Well, not half, but the government gives you the money and then takes some of it back at the end of the year. I'm going to whistle blow on them for stealing half of it. 
But if someone makes 20 million on something, I think the government's probably getting 10 of it almost, aren't they? I mean, they could. Yeah, sure. Between the state and the federal governments. Yeah. I mean, it's that, you know, it was their money to start with. But again, that that would be if you made $20 million doing something else, you would have to pay taxes on it too. Yeah. I mean, so the government does, I mean, this is goes into the tax law. Question, yeah. Yeah. As a matter of tax law, it's just considered income the same as any other income. I mean, you pay income on a lottery winning, you pay in, income if you win money in Vegas, you pay income if your employer gives you a bonus and you pay income if the government gives you a reward. It's just treated the same. Is that true in legal cases across the board whenever you sue a company for something or other and you make so much money on them? Are you paying taxes on all that? Well, this is a little bit outside my expertise. I think the only real exception to that might be personal injury cases where you're being you're being reimbursed essentially expenses that you had to incur. I think in that case the government might not view that as income. It might they might view that as just bringing you back to square one, but certainly in these cases the government views it as income. But it's a lot of money. And for some of our clients, it's literally life-changing money. I mean, these are people that might have been making a pharmacist salary. It's a good profession, but you don't get rich doing that necessarily. And so a million dollars is a lot of money to those folks. John, if you could make one change to the law, to the current setup of this, is there anything you would change that you think would be more fair to the companies or to the whistleblower or the government? Anything you would change on the laws? I think the substance of the law is pretty good. I mean, it, the False Claims Act has, in its current form has basically been on the books since 1986. So it has a long history and there still are these issues that get refined through the court system and litigation over time. But the law has served, I think has served the country well and I think it mostly functions well. I think if I could sort of wave my magic wand and change something about the system, it would have more to do with some of the process issues. It is unfortunate the cases take as long as they do. And again, the average time between when you file the case and when it's resolved might be three or four years. And, I, and as the case gets bigger and stronger, it actually takes longer because the government throws more resources into it. And the, in a big case against a big company, they're going to have defense lawyers on the other side who are going to drag it out. So sometimes these cases can be four years, five years, six years. And that's just the system. And the system grinds slowly in part because the government's resources are limited and they take a long time to investigate these claims. And we often have clients who come to us and they say, oh, this is the biggest fraud. It's the most outrageous fraud. As soon as we go to the government, they're going to be in there with the FBI the next day, season the documents. Two days later, the company's going to crumble and beg to settle. And I'm like, never. It never happens that way. There is a process. The process takes many years. The problem with that is that during the period of that time, often the fraud is still just ongoing. And because these cases are under seal, they're also kind of secret. So information that would be sort of valuable for the public or valuable for the industry to know is kind of kept secret for multiple years, sometimes allowing these practices to go on when they could have been stopped sooner. And it's also putting the company at jeopardy for multiple years. They need to get the case resolved. The whistleblowers are often, their sort of lives are a little bit kind of suspended while these cases are going on. So I wish the cases would move faster. I think the only real way to do that would just be to have the government resources kind of there to move them faster or for the judges to kind of push the cases faster. And I think it is unfortunate that they're that slow and that long but that is ultimately kind of a process bureaucratic problem. 
do these guys ever go to jail? Do corporation people go to jail? I don't know the whole civil versus criminal and all that. Sure. And we have had cases where our clients have come forward in, in a civil case, brought that case to the government. And you know, once you tell the government some information, they're going to do whatever they're going to do with it. You don't control that. And we definitely have had cases where as a result of the information we've given to the Department of Justice, they've ended up opening criminal investigations as well as the civil cases. And where the individuals at the companies, if they are the ones who sort of really masterminded and led a clear intentional fraud, I mean, that's what it has to be. It's, these are not cases where there's gray areas and mistakes. These are clear intentional frauds. We've had cases where companies were forging medical records putting doctor's signatures on documents that the doctors never saw, kickback cases where the it was just outright bribery, where people were being handed bags of cash and gold coins. Cases like that, the government will treat them criminally and people will go to jail. Yes. Is that a pretty wide net? Sometimes it depends who throws whom underneath the bus, but I'm sure that sometimes a CEO maybe isn't in trouble, but it's a CFO that knew this or that, but government probably gets whoever they think was in on it. It's an unfortunate aspect of our criminal justice systems that the, sometimes it's the small guys who get ensnared and the big guys get off because the big guys have sort of plausible deniability. They have better lawyers. But having said that, like I said, we've had companies where high up executives at fairly large companies have had to plead guilty to crimes. Hmm. Criminal cases always come down to intent. And it, the question is, how strong is the evidence that this person knew that what they were doing was wrong? That, that's what the government is really looking at. And if there is not strong evidence of that, if, or if there's a fight about that, the government, they wield that criminal hammer pretty carefully because they don't want to start criminal cases and lose. That's hugely embarrassing for the Department of Justice. They only want to bring cases that they're going to win, and they do win like 90 plus percent of the cases that they bring. So they're pretty careful about who they go after. Since the beginning of time, the thieves always stay one step ahead of the good guys. What direction do you see corruption going of this sort? Do you think that it's going to get easier to be corrupt? And I'm talking about technology and AI and blockchain, things that might help the good guys. Is it just the same pattern we always see where the bad guys are one step ahead of everybody else? Do you see the, <laughs> do you see the balance ever changing? I mean, that's a very high level question. I guess what I would say is we have laws to set rules, but no matter how clear the rules are, people will always violate them. And the example I give is, hey, it's been against the law to murder people since biblical times, and yet every year people go to jail for murder. So, so like you'll never, you can never wring all of the unlawful conduct out of the system. But what you want to try to do is wring as much of it out of the system as you can, and to use the laws in a way to kind of set examples to try to d deter people from doing it again things like that. What I will say is in the healthcare fraud space, because it is so big and so complicated and because there's always new things happen, the government is always starting some new way of paying for things. Before there was Medicare Part D, well, there was no Medicare Part D fraud. Well, now we yeah. have Medicare Part D, so <laughs> right. now there's a new way to commit fraud That's on the right, government. Yeah. <laughs> and so 
every time the government devotes money to something, they know going in, anytime there's some government program where the government is going to fund some big activity, some percentage of that is going to go to fraud. It just is because there will always be people looking to game the system. And so the government is always looking like, where, what is the next thing we need to be looking at? I think right now, coming out of the pandemic in the healthcare world, one of the issues that they're very focused on is sort of telemedicine or remote monitoring, remote medicine type issues. I think the government sees that as kind of an area they need to keep a very close eye on because it obviously has huge benefits in terms of accessibility and efficiency. But there is, it also honestly does open things up a little bit to some shady practices that have already come to light in the telemedicine world. So I think, and I don't know if there's much of that in pharmacy, but it's just something to be careful about. I think if a pharmacy is getting a lot of prescriptions from a telemedicine operation, it kind of flows into this question that we were talking about, like what is the role of the pharmacist in kind of policing the prescriptions that are coming out of that system? And maybe if you're getting a lot of prescriptions that are coming out of a telemedicine system, you just got to have your thinking hat on a little bit harder. But that's definitely an area where the government is very focused on right now. They're also very focused on data security and data privacy issues. So in the healthcare industry, that's electronic medical records and just making sure your systems are really locked down and secure. And so, yeah, I think technology often has both a liberating effect an efficiency effect. It can open up new markets, can make things easier for people. But again, there will always be somebody who's looking to game the system. And every year there is some case where, you know, that we see where we're like, wow, we didn't even know you could commit fraud that way. That was really creative. That was like some good, that was some really good <laughs> fraud right. you did right there. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> but sometimes you get some really creative, interesting, smart fraudsters and yeah, they're exactly quite right. good at what they do. It's, it's, it's always something new. Yeah. Years ago, fraud might be Mrs. Smith. She made it to three appointments this month and not four. So we're going to bill for another appointment. But now you got 8 billion people on their computers that are trying to do this from other side of the world. So it's a big nut to crack, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. But hey, I mean, from my perspective, keeps me in business. That's and it, right. And it keeps it interesting because every case, every new case, I have to learn a whole new thing. And like I said, sometimes I'm quite impressed by what went into some of these Yeah, schemes. they need an award show for that kind of thing. <laughs> Best fraud of the year, exactly. <laughs> Well, John, golly, thanks for joining us. It's interesting, but I'm glad I'm not going down that route. But that's really interesting stuff. It sheds a real different light on things from a larger perspective. That's cool. Well, thanks for having me on. I love talking about what I do. I hope it is interesting to your listeners, and it was a pleasure talking to you. All right, John, very good. Keep up the fight, and we'll look forward to seeing you on the upper fold of the internet for some big case that we cracked. <laughs> I hope so. Thanks a lot. <laughs> All right, John, thank you. You've been listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelzer. Please subscribe for all future episodes.